Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Table Talk, discussions of church, theology, and culture. My name is Luke. I am the family and ministry coordinator here at CBC Elderton. With me, as always, is our lead pastor, Andrew Hall. You join us here this week for our middle episode in our five-part series on the atonement. We are uh, talking about the atonement in the season of Lent leading up to Easter. Uh, There is really nothing more important in the Christian life than the cross, and we want to spend lots of time talking about it. So over the last two weeks, we've done an introduction to the idea of atonement, what it is and where we find it in scripture. Then last week, we spent a little bit of time going over different theories around the atonement. Atonement is a very complicated topic. Uh, Many people have thought many things about it and there are many theories. So we, we spent some time looking over those, Andrew, and we want to spend a little bit of time this week going over the theory that we think is really the, the most biblically accurate and biblically faithful. But before we do that, we want to come back to something that we talked about in our first few episodes, and that is this idea of propitiation. Andrew, this is something you wanted to talk about to lead off our episode this week. And so why don't you tell the listeners what you've got on your mind right now about propitiation? Yeah, when we, when we think about the doctrine of the atonement, um, I think it's helpful to say there are many theories of the atonement first, and those theories each contain some truth to it. So Christ yeah. is our example. Uh, Christ is our ransom. He is our redemption. Uh, he is our propitiation, uh, our atoning sacrifice. Um, so when we talk about uh, penal substitutionary atonement, I think the first thing we need to say is it's a grounding metaphor. So, so that's to say uh, all of the other theories of the atonement I think depend upon this yeah. essential element. Um, we we hear about propitiation in in the New Testament. It's not used a lot. The word it's it's a couple times it's used. Uh, John will talk about how First uh, John two two he is the propitiation for our sins. First uh, John four ten. Uh, this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and He gave Himself. He gave His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Hebrews will use this in Hebrews 2, um, that, that he's a faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for sin. Um, and then Romans, Paul will talk about God put Christ forward as a propitiation. A lot of times when, uh, so I'm, I'm using that, uh, the English standard version here, which is mm-hmm. the translation we use at CBC. Uh, w- one thing that people will notice is that there are different ways that uh, Bibles will translate this word because it's not the, the word propitiation, just, you know, it's not something we're using every day, right? No, not a very common word. Right. So, um, so the idea of propitiation first to define it is simply that, that we are uh, people who are under the wrath of God because we have transgressed his law. We deserve punishment and that God is dealing with, with the wrath by putting Christ forward as a substitute. That's that's simply put what propitiation is, which is why the New International Version will say he is the atoning sacrifice. Mm-hmm. So he puts us into right standing with God, removing God's wrath, uh, giving us God's favor. And so these then become, this, this really becomes the essential part of what grounds all the other pictures of the atonement. 
Yes. And so listener, whenever you hear this word propitiation, whether it's in scripture, whether you're hearing it in a sermon, you could really boil it down to God's wrath satisfied by the sacrifice of a substitute. That's really what propitiation is. And Andrew, you're, you're essentially arguing that propitiation is the idea that really undergirds all of these theories of the atonement that we've talked about last week. These, these theories that all have an element of truth in them, or at least many of them, maybe not all of them, but most of the good ones anyway do. But you, you would say then that propitiation is sort of the, the foundation of all of those theories. Yeah, so I think we could take a look, for example, at Hebrews chapter two. Um, in Hebrews two, uh, the the author of Hebrews there, he's making an argument about how Christ is better. Christ is a better sacrifice. He's a better high priest. He, he just is better in every way than mm-hmm. the Old Testament system. And he says in Hebrews 2.14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, that referring to Christ, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So right there, we've got a couple of pictures of the atonement. One is one is the ransom theory, and one is uh, the Christus Victor, that Christ has defeated evil. Mm-hmm. So you might say, okay, there's those theories of atonement. Uh, why can't they stand on their own? But, but he goes on in verse uh, 17, 16 and 17, to talk about how he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Mm -hmm. So in other words, the way that Christ frees people from bondage, the way that he, he destroys the work of the devil is by being a propitiation. He removes wrath. He removes the punishment of God. And, and that then becomes this grounding for everything else. If the penalty for sin and the wrath of God is not removed, there is no freedom from the bondage of sin. There is no deliverance. There is no destroying of the work of the devil. And so we keep this idea of propitiation in mind as we move to the theory of atonement that we sort of briefly teased the last time. And that's this idea, this theory that is called penal substitutionary atonement. We've got a, a nice long title, some nice big words here to break apart here. Maybe before we dive deeper into particularly what penal substitutionary atonement is, we'll just ask the question, why, why do we think that this particular theory of the atonement is the, the best, most faithful way to most fully understand what the atonement is? Yeah, I think it starts by uh, just by scripture itself. Uh, scripture grounds our understanding of what Christ does by talking about how he deals with the problem of sin. And, and when we talk about the problem of sin, what we need to understand is, is, is that we need to be reconciled to God, but God also, there is a sense in which God has to be reconciled to us because of his wrath. Mm-hmm. And, and because of that, in order to deal with that, and we'll come back to this in a later uh, podcast, but in order to deal with that, we really need... We, we need that fundamental issue addressed. God can destroy the works of the devil. That does not deal with the problem of my soul being at, at, at war with God and, and God's, God's anger against sin. Uh, the, the fact that Christ can be my example, it still doesn't deal with the, the problem 
of this enmity mm-hmm. and even being ransomed or rescued or redeemed. I can be freed. I can be freed. I can be forgiven. And people often talk about the atonement in terms of just, just the word forgiveness. Yeah. But, but atonement is far more than just forgiveness because I could be forgiven but that doesn't that that just wipes the slate clean. That just puts me back to zero. Mm-hmm. If I've got a bank account that's way in the hole, and I'm just my debt is forgiven, that just puts me back to zero. Still don't have any money. Yeah, yeah. I, st- I, I still I'm still not in a I'm, I'm in a better place, but I'm not in a, a place to flourish. Mm-hmm. And what the cross does is it moves us from this place of deep indebtedness because of sin, and it delivers me from that debt by paying it for me. And then it gives me all of the riches of Christ so that the penalty is removed and God's pleasure and favor now rest upon me. Mm-hmm. And so we think penal substitutionary atonement is the, the best, most helpful way to understand atonement uh, first and foremost, as you mentioned, because, because it's, it's scriptural, because we see it in scripture. For those of you who can remember back two weeks, to our episode where we looked at all the places we find atonement in the Old Testament, even back then, this this idea of penal substitutionary atonement specifically is very clear. That's we we would argue going back to those passages. That's very clearly what's there. But also, it's important because it really is the the theory of atonement that addresses the main issue. Right? All these mm-hmm. these other theories are very good, and there's lots of truth to be found in them. But as you're saying, they don't really drill down to the to the deepest problems that we have. And so with that in mind, let's talk then about penal substitutionary atonement. This as complicated as it sounds, as big as these words are, it's it's surprisingly easy to break down because it's three words and you can just break them down one one word at a time. So maybe we can go go back and forth and let's let's talk Andrew about what is penal substitutionary atonement. Yeah, let's start with that first word, penal. Mm-hmm. Uh, the word uh, the word has to do with like penitentiary it has to do with with punishment it has penalty. to do with a penalty yeah that's right and and the penalty for sin is death mm-hmm. we have incurred uh, a penalty because we broke the law and in order for God to be just God has to address the problem of sin mm-hmm. if if he just were to say, I'm not going to worry about your sin. I'm just going to sweep it under the carpet of the universe and we're just going to ignore it. Then what we would have is an enormous problem. We would lose any sense of justice. And every single one of us who have been, who have experienced any sort of injustice, we know that what we want is justice. We want justice to come. Uh, Micah 6, 8, what does the Lord require of you but to do justly? So we need the sense of justice because our court systems depend upon justice. Mm-hmm. There has to be a penalty for doing wrong. If there is no penalty, then injustice prevails and evil prevails. And so a penalty has to be applied when the law has been broken. It's just it's just that plain and simple. We know it intuitively because we're made in the image of God. Yeah. We want justice when we have been violated. And so in the same way, the God of the universe who has, he has experienced uh, the greatest treason of all by us. We've betrayed him. We've been treasonous. There is a penalty for that. And so the penalty that has to be paid is our treason, which is why then Christ is put forward as as one who pays the penalty for us. 
Uh, I can think of uh, a, one, one clear example is, is from Mark 10, 45. Christ did not come to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this picture of, of the payment that, that yeah. is being paid to, to address the problem of sin. So this is our, our first word, penal, in the term penal substitutionary atonement. The next is substitutionary. And this, this idea is the idea of a, a sacrifice of one on behalf of another. This, uh, we talked, we went back to the Old Testament. We talked all about the sacrificial system, the day of atonement, the, the Passover, where the, the Passover lamb was slaughtered and the, the angel of death passed over the people of Israel. There's, there's this idea that the penalty has to be paid, but one dies in the place of another. This is something that God had built into his plan of salvation all the way back, we would argue, to the book of Genesis, when God would have killed an animal to clothe Adam and Eve with, with clothes. This, this substitutionary idea from the beginning of the Bible all the way through until Jesus, who was the, the final ultimate substitutionary sacrifice that all the others pointed to is really at, at the root and core of the atonement. So there's the, the idea of, of the, the penalty that needs to be paid. There's a, the idea that that penalty is paid through substitution. So penal substitutionary, and then of course, atonement. Mm-hmm. You could talk about that a little bit. That's really what we've been talking about all along. Yeah, it's, just coming back to being at one with God. Uh, The relationship is restored. We are reconciled. And the way that we are reconciled is the penalty has been paid by one who can pay the penalty. And in this case, just as the Old Testament put forward, you needed a a spotless lamb that was a a male, a year old, uh, to be offered up in your place, so Christ comes, John one twenty nine. John sees Jesus and he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what Christ does in his coming by obeying the law fully, this is so important. He has to fulfill all righteousness. He has to completely obey because that makes him a pure spotless lamb. And that is what he, that, that is what allows him to be the one who can pay the penalty as our substitute to make us at one with God. So there's those three words, the penalty paid, penal, in our place, substitutionary, and at right with God, atonement. And all of this then moves us towards being in a place of legally, we were found guilty, but now we are declared not guilty and and what is given to us and what is applied to our case is all of the benefits of Christ's perfections. So this is what we mean when we talk about penal substitutionary atonement. And I imagine that for many people listening, this would be fairly uncontroversial. This is something in our context that we will have taught for, I mean, certainly as long as you've been pastor here, and I'm sure long, long before that as well. But historically, there there have been some, some times and some places where this idea has not been particularly appreciated as it compared to other theories that we've talked about, like a, like a ransom, ransom theory, an example theory, or even Christus Victor, some of those are, you might say, some might say a little more pleasant to think about. There have been objections raised to penal substitutionary atonement, either objections that maybe it's part of it, but we shouldn't consider it the primary part, 
or that it should be discarded altogether. Things like it's it's abusive, it's bloody, it's violent. Why would well, why would we want to focus all of our energy on the son being punished and killed by the father? There's a very very emotional, very sort of evocative language used in, in some circles to object to the idea of penal substitution. I told me. And so, Andrew, what what thoughts would you have with regard to those objections or any others you might care to bring up? So when we hear the objection that this is, uh, one, one author put it as it's divine child abuse. Mm-hmm. That's the, the sound bite that goes around. Yeah. Right? yeah. And, and it, it seems to have traction because the father puts forward his son as a substitute to deal with his wrath. So it looks like an angry dad just laying it all out on his son. At least on the surface. Right? On the yeah. surface. That's what it appears like. And so that's the objection. And understandably, in a culture where people have experienced abuse at, at, the, at the hands of loved ones, where power has been abused, it's understandable that this objection comes forward. Yeah. The first thing I would say to that is abuse is always evil. Yeah. And and that needs to be loud and clear that any for uh, any form of of abuse uh, i i would entirely object to and the second thing i would say is that where this is rooted i think it's rooted in the human experience rather than understanding the divine experience mm-hmm. what i mean by that is we we if we start with our human objection because of abuse uh, we project then onto God our experience, which is rooted in sin and death. Yep. But the reality is uh, we start with really the, the doctrine of the Trinity that God has always been a God of Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect harmony, perfect relationship, perfect union, perfect love. Even before creation, creation is the overflow of the expression of God's love. And and God's plan of redemption is just a further expression of that love. There is no division in terms of what God's plan was. It's mm-hmm. not as though God had this plan and he had to conjo- cajole his son to, oh, I need you to go. You've got to do this. But rather there was this sense of the father makes this plan of redemption to which the son says, yes, mm-hmm. I fully embrace this. I am going to go which is why Hebrews 12 can talk about who for the joy set before him endured the cross. So it's not as though the son goes reluctantly or with any hesitation, but he goes because as father and son, before eternity began, this was their plan together. One heart, one, uh, there's just the the sense of the oneness of the Trinity. They, They had one plan of redemption and and their hearts were fully knit together. And I'm using poor language here in terms of trying to describe the Trinity, but <laughs> yeah. but but the, the essence is the oneness of God is played out in the three persons of God. And so there is no division here. And so that I think really helps us that that the operations of the Trinity are in complete unity. Mm-hmm. They're in complete cooperation. And in light of that, then, it is, it is not the father forcing the son to go. It is the son who for the joy set before him goes. Yeah, I think of what Jesus said in John chapter 10. 
in 17 and 18, Jesus says, I lay my life down that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This, it's very clear that Jesus, though certainly he, he did at Gethsemane did struggle, of course, as a, as a human, it was a, a difficult and hard thing to do, but he, he went to the cross willingly and out of love and right. not, not reluctantly, as you say. And so, yeah, I think as far as the objections go, I, th- I really think that that covers a lot of it for sure. For and I'd sure. say the, the other objection that I've, I've sometimes heard Luke has been this idea that, that God has wrath towards humans just isn't found in the Bible. It's that humans rage against God. And so, hmm. you know, there's a, there's a, a former Canadian pastor who is well known who would put forward this objection that it's really humanity. Uh, God, Jesus is dealing with humanity's wrath uh, towards God. And yet, all you have to do is look back to the Old Testament and say, well, why then is there an angel of death that passes over Egypt? Why then is there a punishment? God deals with how his firstborn son, Israel, uh, Exodus 4, uh, has has been treated in bondage and slavery. And so he, he brings a penalty for sin and there's an anger that he does have. And in light of that, then we can trust and we can believe and we can hope that God is no longer, humans have this struggle. Is God angry with me? And Romans 8 says it so clearly. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because all of that condemnation is dealt with. The cross has removed it all. There is no sense in which God is angry with the believer anymore. That's gone. And so we need to banish that thought that God's angry with us to hell because that's where that thought belongs. Mm-hmm. What actually belongs is that the Father is now working for our eternal good and joy, even in our hardships. Yes, absolutely. Amen to that. We, we haven't done this much so far in our Table Talk podcast, but one thing we certainly used to do back in our old recordings a lot more was recommend some, some resources. We, we love books here. We're nerds to some degree. And for those of you who like to read or who would enjoy other resources from time to time as well, we do want to talk a little bit about that. And atonement, of course, is, is a complex topic, one that even in a series of five podcasts can really only be looked at in a cursory way. And so we want to recommend a few resources. I'm, I'm bringing one, uh, a book that is well known on the idea of the atonement. It's called Pierced for Our Transgressions. There's a, a number of authors involved, Steve Jeffrey, Michael Ovi, and Andrew Sack. And this is really, I think, considered to be one of the definitive works on atonement. I wouldn't say that it's super academic, but it is also maybe a little more of a sort of higher reading level than the most sort of basic Christian books you may be used to. So it does require a little bit of mental energy and stamina. It is a little more on the the dense and long and scholarly side, but it is a a very good book that goes into a lot of detail and into many of the things that we've, we've talked about here. It's, it's one that we have both appreciated as we've gone up through, through seminary and one that if you want to read more, you want to dive deeper into the, the idea, the concept of atonement, that would be one really good resource for you. Yeah. The other one that it's a classic it's very thick, but very thorough, very helpful. John Stott, The Cross of Christ. Mm-hmm. I've been greatly helped by that book. Um, and 
And in light of that book, I'd say um, you can find pretty much everything that we've talked about and more in that book. Um, it's it's fairly accessible, and if you're looking for if you're looking for a really uh, good basic read, um, while the author uh, there's been some questions about the author, um, I still would recommend C.J. Mahaney's book, The Cross Centered Life. Mm-hmm. And that little book, it's maybe a hundred pages. It's a small book, but it's a fantastic read that will just make your heart soar as you hear about what Christ has done for us. Absolutely. And so now we come to the end of our third episode. For those of you who have stuck with us, we've spent really three weeks now diving into what the atonement is and how it works and what the different theories about it are. We've we've been quite a quite academic in in some ways, quite scholarly. And we want to now in our last two episodes, move things a little more practical. We've done a a lot of thinking now. We want to start applying the idea of atonement to our lives. And so next week we'll be talking about the benefits of the cross. And we will look forward to hopefully having many of you join us then. Have a great week, everyone. Mm